Today's guest is Lionel Friedberg. He's an Emmy award-winning film and TV producer and writer. He has worked as a director of photography on 18 feature films and wrote, produced, and directed for National Geographic, PBS, Discovery Channel, and the History Channel. He is also a New York Times bestselling author, and today we will be talking about his life and his book, Forever in My Veins, How Film Led Me to the Mysterious World of the African Shaman. Mr. Friedberg, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. It's a great pleasure, Jeff. Nice to be with you guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. The through line of your new book is that everything came to pass in your life was foretold by traditional healer and soothsayer, also called Ganga. And this happened in a small hut in the African bush in 1964. So let's start with what prompted you to pay this person a visit in the first place? Okay, it's quite interesting. I'll try and condense it and make it uh, relevant without going into too much detail. My folks moved. I grew up in South Africa and eventually my parents, I'm an only child. My parents moved away from South Africa for two reasons. Number one was the apartheid system of the racist uh, uh, division of of races, which was an awful system in which, uh, and which to live uh, Mm -hmm. under. And so my father decided to leave um, but there were other reasons as well. And he was offered a business opportunity of running a small business in a mining area in Central Africa called the Copper Belt. Mm-hmm. And the country at that time was called Northern Rhodesia. It, it was a British colony. And so he went up there. I had finished my education. And of course, I went with them. My mother said, you stay here in South Africa. Go to university, get yourself a degree of some kind. And I said, no, 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 I want to go with you guys there because I was always in love with the movies. I started making movies when I was 11. And I thought, they go into this wild and woolly place in the middle of Africa. Here's my opportunity to make King Solomon's Mines and the African Queen and all those movies that I loved so much as a kid. Now I can do that because that's where they're going. Mm. And so I insisted on going with them. And I went up there. And what was interesting was, but when I arrived, my father ran this very, very small uh, business, a little jewelry watchmaking business in a small town where there was a copper mine. And, uh, but there was nothing for me to do. And I was kind of mortified. What, are, what am I going to do now? Until it was decided by a British company to start a television service in these copper mining towns because the miners were earning tons of money. And they had a lot of buying power, but they couldn't spend anything because we're in the middle of the boondocks in the middle of Africa. So they would buy boats and trailers and all that kind of stuff because they could afford that. The copper mining industry was huge at that time. Anyway, so it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was an interesting time, but the colonies of Britain were coming apart. Britain was giving independence to all of its colonies. However, I joined this television station, which was a brand new little television station, a small station in the middle of the bush. And we put out a lot of live programming for local tribes as well as the miners at night. And we ran shows from England and from the U.S. It was a, a mixture of all kinds of cultural diversity. It was an incredible, uh, you know, place in which to work and live. And, um, in 1964, Northern Rhodesia was given its independence by Britain and was destined to become the Republic of Zambia, which is what it's called now. And when that happened, we got a letter from the government to say, 
all of you white guys <laughs> who are working in the television station out. Wow. Your jobs have got to go to local people. Well, that's understandable. It's their country. And so we were all given like six months notice. We had to train other people and then we had to leave. And it was very traumatic for me because I thought, what am I going to do now? So we all had servants in those days. Everybody had servants. Hmm. So we had a guy who worked for us. His name was David Fury, a Bemba man. That's one of the big tribes. in Zambia. And I went to him and I said, David, you know, a terrible thing has happened. I have to leave. I don't know what I'm going to do because I've been asked to leave the television station and I don't know what, what to do. Where should I go? What, you know, what, what, what opportunities are there for me? And he said, ah, I will take you to someone who will help you, who will know. And I mm. said, who? He said, we will go. And it was decided we'll go on Thursday or whatever it was. So comes the Thursday, David and I in my little VW bug, my little blue Volkswagen bug went uh, driving along this rutted road to this hut out in the middle of this of the bush and David uh, goes to the door knocks on the door and there was this ancient old shrunken old woman it was a very 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 hot day Central Africa's hot always hot mm. but she was covered in coats which had a gray blanket over her what's interesting is she was an albino Sometimes the Africans, there's a, there's a fault in the pigment of their skin and they don't have black skin, they have white skin. So she was a, an albino woman, but didn't speak a word of English. And David said to me, she will tell you exactly what you have to do. We went into a hut, she closed the door, we were told to sit on the floor and she unrolled a grass mat which she put on the floor and she brought out a little bag, an animal skin bag. And in this bag were a bunch of Bones and stones and pebbles, those were her tools. That was her mechanism. That was her medium to the spirit world. And she made me blow into this bag and say my name. And then she turned the bag upside down and these bones and stones fell on the, on the mat and she started to read them. It was the most extraordinary experience. She was translating to David and he was, you know, trying to keep up with her. And I was trying to make as many notes as I could. I'm sure I lost half of them. But every single thing that that woman told me that day has come to pass. And I'm talking about 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. That I would uh, travel abroad, that I would go onto the big water and the water will try to kill me. I would go into the bush one day and the big beast will tr- almost kill me. She said, and the time will come where you are going to get very, very, very sick. And then one of the things she said to him was, uh, to, to David was, oh, he's going to go to this world where there is no color. It's only white, no mm-hmm. color at all. And she said another thing to him. And she said to him, um, he's going to meet a man who was, a very, very close friend to the most evil person who ever lived. Now, I'm writing all this stuff down, not understanding any of it, mm-hmm. not understanding what any of it means. But, of course, it's, 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 it's plugged into my mind, and I remembered all these things, and I did have notes. you know. And as these events unfolded, and as my career unfolded, everything that that woman said did come to pass. I was on a ship that almost capsized at sea. I was on a research ship in the South Atlantic where we nearly drowned in a, in a storm. Mm-hmm. I did a film in uh, 1990 in Antarctica. That's the white world that she saw. Mm-hmm. There is no color there. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we were on Christmas Day in 1990, we were on this research vessel, a vessel, an American research vessel, and we stopped and we were just sitting in the ice. We were surrounded by an ice pack. The sky was white. The world was white. It was like being in an egg. And that day I went on deck and I suddenly thought, that's what she saw, this world. Mm. And, you know, time and time again, these things came to pass. As far as the guy who was very close to the most evil man in the world, that's an extraordinary story because in 1983, I made a documentary series on the history of an airline in South Africa. And one of the things that we dealt with in this documentary was back in the 1930s, they bought three brand new German aircraft that had to be flown from Germany to South Africa. They were made by the Junkers company, JU-52s, in case there are any aviation people out there. They were amazing airplanes. And uh, to fly all the way from Germany, from Bremen to Johannesburg, down the length of Africa, was a big deal in the 30s. There weren't airfields. There was no radio, you know, and all of that stuff. And so it was a big, uh, an adventure, if you like. And one of the pilots who flew one of those airplanes, the delivery flight from the factory, was still alive in 1983. I said, we've got to interview this guy. We've Mm -hmm. got to interview him. And we discovered that he lived in a little town, a place called Amrasi, which is just to the south of Munich. And um, when we arrived to do the interview, we were met by a representative from the German government, Department of Information, and a few other uh, 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 people from the, um, from the world of, 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 of aviation and foreign affairs in Germany. And I was told by all of them that when we interview this man, I wasn't allowed to talk about the war at all. So, I mean, I figured out that um, he must have been a young guy during World War II. He must have been a pilot in the Luftwaffe. And I said, that's fine. I won't talk about that. That's not what I'm here to, to discuss with the guy. I want to know about the delivery flight down Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, so that night before we did the interview, we had a lot of very good Rhine wine. Uh. And this guy from the foreign office, <laughs> right about midnight, he says to me, he leaned forward like this. And he said, but what do you really know about Hans Barr, which is the name of this man? I said, mm-hmm. well, what do you mean? He was, an air, he was, a, he was a pilot, right? And they said, yeah, but do you know what kind of pilot he was? And I said, no, what are you you talking about? And he said to me, he was the personal pilot of Adolf Hitler. Wow. And he was a very, very close friend with Adolf Hitler. But don't talk about it. And, you know, I was kind of taken aback because Hitler has a reputation of being one of the (laughs) biggest tyrants of all time. Yes. And Hans Bauer knew him very well. In fact, when Hans Bauer married his first wife, Hitler gave him his, his party, his wedding party in his apartment in Munich. Wow. That's how close these two guys were. So anyway, I, I did interview this man. And uh, there was a translator there speaking German. Uh, Hans Bauer spoke no English. So I would ask a question. The German guy would translate. He would answer me. And, you know, we dubbed it afterwards. Um, and he kind of felt comfortable with me. And at the end of the interview, there were little items from the war around the house that you could see. Not too much. It wasn't like a museum, but there were little bits and pieces. And he said to me, he pointed at one photograph and he said, do you want to know about that? And I said, yes, I do. And he called his wife and he said, bring the photograph albums. Mm. She brings out all of these leather-bound albums. 
the whole story of World War II and him and Adolf Hitler and, and, and Mussolini and Goebbels and all of the Nazi henchmen. And in all of these shots, there he is, because he and Hitler were very, very close. And he told me his entire story. A charming, charming man. Uh, I, I didn't feel uncomfortable at all with him, but he knew one of the most evil men who ever lived, you know? That's and amazing. as we drove away from his house, you know, I looked back and there was his wife and there he was waving goodbye to us like this. And I said, he thought, my God, that's what the Nganga saw. She foresaw this day 30 years ago. Mm. It's really been amazing. So, um, once all of these things began to happen, you know, I, I developed a, a whole new respect for traditional healing. Mm. These, these amazing people who live often in mud huts in the middle of nowhere are some of the wisest and most intuitive people I have ever met. And so the through line of my book, which talks about a lot of different things, films are made with NASA, films are made about near-death experiences, films are made on a bunch of topics. The through line through the book is the story that this, everything that came to pass is what this woman actually foresaw back in 1964. It's, it was, I mean, my life was basically the scenario that he gave, that she gave me that day. Let me go back to that day that she gave you these predictions after she gave them to you. Did you just yeah. kind of leave the hut and take it like with a grain of salt or did you dismiss it or no? And I'll tell you why, because when I was a kid living in South Africa, mm -hmm. uh, there were often every house had a servant and they all had rooms in the backyard. You know, they had a cold shower and a little tiny room. And there was one house not far from where, where I grew up as a kid that often on, 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 a, on a particular afternoon when, when the servants used to have their half day off during the week, they would line up outside her room and go in there and come out carrying little bags of stuff. And I, you know, I said to our servant, I said, what's going on in there? She said, oh, that lady, she's, she, she's, a, she's a medicine person. She's a healer. She's a doctor. But I mean, during the day, she scrubbed the floors and did the laundry, and that's what she did. But she was trained in this paradigm of African healing. Mm -hmm. And so I saw that as a child and I was very uh, intrigued by all of that. So I didn't dismiss what this Nganga told me. I knew that this kind of stuff went on. And then later on in my career uh, in the seventies, I did a very big series in South Africa on the history of all the major tribes of South Africa and an examination of, of all their, their culture, their dance, their music, their spiritual beliefs, and I just met uh, so many of these amazing people. In South Africa, they're not called Nangas. They are called Sangomas. Mm -hmm. So I had a very, very healthy respect for them in later years. But no, I didn't dismiss that woman outright. But I had no idea what she was referring to. All right. After you did have your meeting with her, I kind of feel like what she gave you was symbolism and things that you were going to do in your life. When did you finally kind of figure out, okay, my direction is television and film, and how did you get into that? Yeah, well, my, my mother was responsible for that because when I was four years four years old, my mother dragged me to my first movie. It starred Esther Williams and Red Skelton, and I saw this, and I said to my mother at the end of it, I said to her, that was amazing. You know, where does that lady live? I was maybe five years old, and my mother said, she lives in America. That's the first time I ever heard America, the word America. 
I made up my mind when I was five years old that I wanted to make movies and I wanted to make movies in America. That was my ambition right from the get-go. So by the time I, I was 11 years old, I had a little eight millimeter camera. We used to use film back in those days, eight millimeter film. And I used to make films for my school, for my friends, you know, if they had birthday parties, whatever, and I put them together, edit them and uh, give them to them as gifts and so on. So I was always in love with the movies. Mm. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Oh, that's amazing. Let me ask you this. Are there any predictions that she told you that have not come to pass yet? Well, the scariest one is the one that is actually unfolding as we speak, and that is this illness that she said to me. You know, this, this illness, she, she told me, you're going to have an illness that you, you will nearly die. You will nearly die. But this, but this illness is going to want to take your life away from you. Was, uh, about 20 years ago, I was, it was discovered that I had a, uh, a very serious kidney problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my immune system had turned against my kidneys, and I was beginning to suffer kidney failure. And I have been dealing with this ever since. Now, of course, I go to my nephrologist and I go to my doctors here in L.A., but I also go back to Africa to see the shamans about mm. that because those people have helped me just as much as the guys down in Beverly Hills mm. have helped me with their allopathic Western medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, they give me, they give you little powders and little objects that you put in your bath, you put it under your pillow. And I am utterly convinced that all of those things are what have actually kept me going in addition to the Western medicine that I've been experiencing. And, you know, I, I'm still uh, living that experience right now. Mm-hmm. Beyond this, uh, I do not recall anything else that she might have predicted. And I'm a go- an old guy now. There's not much you know, more to go. You know, I've <laughs> got maybe, maybe another 10 years to go. <laughs> so who knows? But it's this illness that I'm dealing with. And she foresaw this as well. And I have been back to Africa to get healing for this. And I have had all kinds of weird experiences, including an exorcism where they try to exorcise the bad negative energy out of my body. And that was a terrifying experience to undergo, I can tell you. Hmm. That's amazing. At what point in your life, I mean, I know you said you didn't dismiss that, but was there at some point in your life where maybe one or the second thing happened and then you said, oh my gosh, I think this lady is right. These things are really happening. I think uh, when she said to me, one of the things that she told me was, you're going to cross the big water. Because what I did was after this, you know, there was no more work for me to do in Central Africa. It was mm-hmm. in independence. The whites were leaving the country. They weren't, uh, uh, they didn't have the lifestyle that they did before. So they, you know, most of the folks would go back either to Europe I went back to South Africa. My, my parents remained up there. My father stayed and he ran the business. But I went back to South Africa and I became very active in the film industry. Mm-hmm. And, but I thought, I cannot live under the system of apartheid. I've got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I thought, it's time for me to actually go to North America. That was, that's my dream mm-hmm. and I want to do that. But, you know, they wouldn't give visas at that time to white South Africans because of apartheid. Mm-hmm. So I thought... All right, what am I going to do? Okay, I'll try the Canadian embassy. And the Canadians did give me a visa. So I emigrated to Canada with the intention of coming to the States as soon as I possibly could. Um, 
And so the way I got to England, because I had two big trunks and whatever else, I didn't fly, and most people didn't fly those days. You went by sea. So as I was sitting on the ship one night, going from the southern hemisphere across the equator all the way up to the northern hemisphere and seeing the stars change every night, I sat there one night and I thought, this woman saw that when she said you are going to cross the big water. That's exactly what I'm doing. Hmm. I'm going from one hemisphere, the south, to the north, and then I'm going to go from the east to the west. She knew that. My audience is really into near-death experiences, and you mentioned that uh, it was prophesied that you would be involved with near-death experiences. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think it was, um, I don't even remember the network, but um, I had always been interested in uh, the paranormal in the fact that I don't believe death is the end at all. In fact, I know it isn't. Um, and so uh, it must have been around about 1994 or 95. I was given the opportunity, and I, I'm not sure if, the, if it was the Discovery Channel or if it was A&E or the History Channel, one of those. I, I was given the opportunity of making a film called Beyond Death, and I wanted to make that film. Mm. When I heard that it was being uh, um, planned, I went out of my way to try and get the job. And fortunately, I was very, very lucky. I've been very fortunate throughout my life. I've really got, had some amazing gigs. I mean, I really think I'm probably one of the luckiest people on the planet because I've had the most amazing experiences and the most amazing gigs to do. And so I tried to get this job and I got it to write and direct this. It was a two hour special. And the brief was, what happens to consciousness after the demise of the physical body. Or if you want to think of it another way, what happens to your thoughts or your soul or your spirit when your body dies? Does it go someplace? If so, where? What happens to it? Well, I have always been a, a, a great believer in the process of reincarnation. I've had many friends uh, who've exposed me to uh, Eastern philosophy. And the concept of karma, I knew from way back from my teens. Uh, so I, I, I'm completely open to all of this. And this, this film gave me the opportunity to do a scientific uh, investigation into what happens. So part of, the, uh, of this, this show was devoted to people who had NDEs, near-death experiences. The most amazing ones, by the way, were young children of the age of about five to eight years old in Seattle who had all had NDs for various reasons. They died during surgery or uh, they had an accident. And I met this, uh, uh, this pediatrician surgeon who interviewed all of these kids and collected their stories. And I think there must've been about 10 or 12 of these kids. I met them all and I met the pediatrician and he asked all of them to draw what they saw uh, after they were resuscitated, revived from, from death, they were clinically dead for three or four minutes at a time, and they were all brought back to life. And all of these kids had very, very similar experiences. They all drew this tunnel. They all drew the, 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 the light calling them at the end of the tunnel. Uh, most of the kids said they were given an opportunity to go to the light, and most of them said there was either a big room or a big space 
where there were people. Some of them uh, described them as angels. Some of them described them as uh, people that, uh, you know, uh, it could have been Jesus. It could have been God. It could have been my grandma. Um, and they all welcomed me there. But I was given the choice to either stay there or to go back to the real world to where my parents were. And they, were, they all had the similar story to tell. And they drew it in their artwork. And the, the, the fact that, 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 that this was so common to all of them made, made me really think, well, these kids really did have that experience. They went to the other side and were given an option, return to the body or continue with whatever goes on on the other side. And they all came back uh, because they said, oh, no, I knew my mommy and my daddy were going to miss me. And so I decided, yeah, I'll go back into my body again. Mm. And then they said they got very, very cold. And when I woke up, mom was there or granny was there. And, you know, uh, and, and I was glad to be back. They all had similar stories to tell like that. But one particular story was amazing. Um, I won't mention names, but her first name was Pam. She is a woman um, in probably she was in her mid thirties, I would say. Um, and this, this story took place in Atlanta. Uh, she had an aneurysm on her brain. And the only way to remove the aneurysm was to actually stop the blood flow, because if they had opened her skull and removed the aneurysm, she would probably have bled to death. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have that happen mm -hmm. to you. So they connected her entire um, um, system to a machine to keep the blood flowing, but they stopped the heart. And uh, she remembered the entire operation. And I talked to her about it. She said, well, when the time came for them to stop my heart, I left my body and I went up into the roof of the operating room and I could hover in the corner and look down and I saw exactly what they were doing to me. Now, you know, she told the surgeon all of this after the operation. The operation lasted about four or five hours. It was major surgery. And she said, you know, I, I, I watched that. I saw exactly what you did. The surgeon didn't believe a word of it. Mm. Until she said, why did you yell at the nurse when she dropped that instrument? You asked for an instrument. She dropped it and you scolded her. Why did you do that? It wasn't her fault. He said, you saw that? And she said, yeah, I was up there. I saw you I saw you do that. Not only that, but he had a little tape player going in the corner of the operating room playing music because it was a long surgery. She could tell him the music that was playing in the background. So I interviewed the surgeon as well. Uh, and he said, Pam had a near-death experience where she witnessed everything that happened to her while she was clinically dead. I mean, there was a guy that I uh, talked to, a rock fell on him and crushed his chest. Mm -hmm. And his buddies managed to get him to a hospital just in time. But by the time they got to the hospital, he was already clinically dead. But he remembers all of that stuff. So there are a lot of people who come back with memories of what happened. And, you know, when you're dead, you don't know this kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. he foresaw all of this. He witnessed all of that. He even described what they did and how they got him into the ambulance. Uh, so the point is that, you know, consciousness is more than just synapses firing in a brain and the soul or the spirit or whatever it is, is an, is, is, is an entity or a, or, or, or a commodity outside of the physical body. 
that's what this movie eventually started to prove. And I, and I met this amazing guy called Robert John at Princeton University who was doing major research into this field. And he wanted to know, well, if consciousness exists outside of the physical body, what is consciousness? Is it like, you know, light is made of photons and photons is an energy. What about consciousness? Can consciousness have the same qualities as that? And so this guy, Robert John at Princeton University, in the engineering division, by the way, not the Uga Booga department, <laughs> but the engineering division, they were doing research with people making numbers come up on random number generators, on making objects move on tabletops, purely by thinking about it. And the person who was, who was in influencing these inanimate objects was not always in the room, but sometimes on the other side of the world. They had what they were called subjects. Some of them were in Australia. And they had a certain time zone. And they said, right, tonight we're going to have an object on the table. You must make that object go to the left. They had a little a car, a little, little toy car with wheels. And lo and behold, at the time when they knew that they were actually, when this experiment was beginning, this object started moving to the left. So consciousness itself is a kind of energy field. It exists outside of physicality. Mm -hmm. There's no question of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, one of the lessons that I've, I've learned um, over my, my life as a filmmaker and a documentary filmmaker delving into all kinds of really interesting subjects, I actually end the book, the very last chapter in the book, I, I say, you know, I think of us all as being like a, uh, a bumper car ride at a fairground. We're all in these little bumper cars. And at the back of these bumper cars, there's a, there's a pole going, touching a grid at the top, like wire mesh. Mm -hmm. that's, where the, that's where the electricity is coming from. And I said, you know, all of us, whether we're a pony or a petunia or a person, I think we're all connected to this grid, this mesh, this field unites all of us not only here on the earth i think it works on a cosmic level mm. and i honestly do believe that we're all integrated and as quantum physics begins to unravel the mysteries of the universe i think we're getting closer and closer to the fact that this does exist i was watching a very interesting documentary the other night on youtube i love that stuff i mean i, I watch these things all the time mm. and it was about quantum physics that if you can split a molecule and you can take one atom and put it there and the other atom and put it there. Whatever you do to that atom, that other atom exact, um, 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 it, it behaves in exactly the same way. They're connected, even though they are no longer part of the same molecule. And I think that that is, we all have that. We're all part of that same connectedness. We don't see it. We can't turn to it, but it exists. It's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree and with it's, you. And, you know, um, so what does this tell us that, you know, spirituality, um, I do believe in a divine intelligence of that. I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. But our concept of uh, our traditional concepts, uh, you know, really needs some serious rethinking. Uh, it's more complicated than we know, but it is as real as this table in front of me right now. There is a super consciousness that binds us all and has an influence on all of us. That statement almost sounds like the force from Star Wars. It binds us all. 
That's exactly that. That's exactly what it is. You know, George Lucas knew that, of course. And and I'm glad that, you know, when that movie came out, people started to think about that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe there is something like the horse. Mm-hmm. I believe there is. Would you say that you follow a particular religion or are you just kind of agnostic no. or are you spiritual? Not at, not, not at all. My, my father was from Eastern Europe. He was from Latvia. So he's from a Jewish background. My mother was was not, she, um, but I was exposed, if you like. I went to a, to a Jewish school for a few years in Johannesburg, which was an excellent private school. Mm-hmm. So I suppose I, I would say that maybe I was brought up uh, um, uh, with, with, with Judaism as, as the driving force. But it was very clear to me that, you know, that this is not what it's all about. So mm-hmm. I broke away from all of that when I was already in my teenage years. Mm-hmm. I knew that there's more to this than traditional uh, religion mm-hmm. offers you. Um, I think, you know, a religion has had some wonderful values in people's lives and it gives them a, a, a crack and it gives them something to believe in and it gives them something to turn to when they really need it uh, during the loss of a loved one or whatever the case may be. Uh, but it's it's not as simplistic as as we are told it is, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, there's a guy sitting on a cloud looking down at us and taking mm-hmm. care of us. Mm-hmm. I think that entities like angels are probably a reality, mm-hmm. that they are agents of the super, uh, super, super uh, 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 entity, the super consciousness of the universe that do watch over you. And I think we all have maybe our own around us, um, I meditate twice a day mm-hmm. and I connect with, I don't know who and what they necessarily are, but I know they're there and I know I connect with them and I know that they've seen me through thick and thin, through all kinds of trouble and they, they surround me with protection. Uh, mm. it's, it, it, it's real. Mm. It's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not just blatant belief. You know, I used to meditate a long time ago with a certain uh, Indian style called Raja Yoga, but I've kind of been looking back into getting into it again, and I've kind of done a little bit. Um, do you mind sharing what kind you're doing? I don't follow any particular process. Uh, I was uh, uh, back in the, when was it? The Was it the 60s or the 70s um, when meditation was a huge fad? Everybody was doing it. I was initiated into a, a system, but I've never followed any particular system. I do my own thing. And I, I and I feel that I can make contact with, you know, higher beings, and my higher self, uh, and and if you like, my guides, my guardians, if you like, by sitting under a thorn tree. I, I don't have to go to a, a temple or a church or a mosque or a whatever. I don't have to go to a building for that. I can sit under a tree. I can sit in the middle of the desert. I love going into the Mojave Desert, and mm-hmm. sitting there under the skies at night and making contact with whatever I'm able to make contact with. There are there are ways of doing that. So I just turn in to myself. I don't necessarily always empty my thoughts because I find it very hard to empty my head. My head is ticking away all the time. Right. But I connect with those those beings that I know I have uh, access to. When the Ganga gave you her predictions, did she give you any advice? Like, okay, if this happens in your life, you should do this. And if so, was there ever a point where you said, oh, I should have followed her advice on that? 
No, she didn't do that at all. Once, mm-hmm. once the reading was over and she just kept spewing all these incidents out, you know. Mm-hmm. When, it, when she'd finished doing that after about, I don't know, must have been about an hour and a half, two hours, she just got up and left the room. And that was it, <laughs> you know. Um, but I have seen other um, shamans in South Africa help people a lot. Uh, people who've lost loved ones or people who've, who've, who, who are ill, you know, and, and that always it's, it's to do with the ancestors. The paradigm in Southern Africa with, with Sangomas, the shamans, is everything is done through the ancestors. They, their belief is you cannot have direct access to call it God, if you like, or and Kosinkulu is one of the words for God in in one of the vernaculars in South Africa. But, but they don't believe that they can even go there. It's just too vast, too great, too far away. But the way they can reach out to the 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 the, the other side, if you like, uh, the other realms is always through the ancestors, and that the ancestral spirits will always be available to them because they are in that realm and they can help us in the physical world. So the bones and the stones and all those little things lying on the grass mat, when they are thrown onto the grass mat, they believe it's the ancestors who make them fall in certain patterns. Hmm. And they will always thank the ancestor uh, for doing that. And they can point out, this is your grandfather speaking. This is your mother speaking. This is your great uncle speaking, and they want you to do this. They want you to do that. They want you to change your course. They want you to change your medication. They want you to divorce the guy. Whatever it is, Hmm. it's always the ancestors who are helping them give the advice, give the healing, dispense the medicine. And there are lots of medicines that they get from, you know, out in the field, leaves and barks and things. I've drunk a lot of that stuff, and it's, you know, uh, it's amazing. The, the, it's, it's extremely complex. It is today recognized as an official healing system in South Africa. It used to be in the old days when it was controlled by the whites during the days of apartheid that what the Sangomas did was all you know nonsense. Now it's officially recognized by the Department of Health that this is an official way where you can actually derive healing and find help. I think that's fascinating that you mentioned that because, you know, it's obvious that in a lot of traditional healing systems or traditional health, like Chinese traditional medicine, right. uh, Indian traditional medicine, um, right. is that Ayurveda, but I never really thought about African traditional medicine. And as far as I understand it, geneticists say that everybody comes from Africa. Yeah. So I wonder if potentially the African system of healing and mm. traditional medicines really may be the oldest in the world. Well, let's not um, dismiss uh, too quickly or too easily the, the wisdom of Native Americans, for example, the tribes, mm-hmm. the Indians. They have amazing shamans. Mm-hmm. And if you look at South America, and I've met a couple of shamans in South America in the Amazon. One of them that I met, all he did was he took a branch and he took it over my head like this. And the way the leaves rustled, he interpreted what the leaves were telling him. And he said, yeah, it's your kidneys. That's your kidneys. That's your, that's your problem. He, he, he knew he, 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 immediately from whatever mechanism, whatever medium it was that he had. So as you go around the world, shamans exist in every tribal society all around the world. 
They're everywhere. And I think that the ones in North America are not recognized enough, and I think they need, you know, more recognition than they than they than they than they got. There's a great movie, by the way, um, with Dustin Hoffman called Little Big Man. Uh, some of your viewers may know the movie, um, and Little Big Man is a story of a white guy uh, who is, you know, he's with his parents crossing the plains, you know, going to find new beginnings, and they are they encounter this this Indian uh, tribe. And everybody gets killed except this this young child, this young boy. And so he gets adopted by the tribe, by the Indian tribe. So he learns the Indian's way of life. But he also has some knowledge of, of his old white society. And and one of the oldest members of the tribe he refers to as his grandfather. And this is Dustin Hoffman. It's a wonderful performance by mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman. And uh and um and 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 uh in the movie the the this old man says to him you know that uh we have great wisdom and you have to learn this wisdom because if you do uh you can heal you can help you will always be safe and the film uh, and and this this old guy says in our society the shamans whoever the shamans are and they all have different names they were they are favored by the great spirit they have a special place they were given a role to play down here on the earth by the great spirit to help those in need. And, you know, the, the Dustin Hoffman character buys into this completely, as do we, the audience, and we, we witness some of that. Uh, so I think that wherever you go in the world, I mean, Peru is full of amazing folks who do extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. And they have amazing access to the natural world and substances that you get from the natural world that really do heal you know, mm-hmm. roots and barks and berries and so on. Mm-hmm. But you were talking about Africa. We are all originally, we humans come from Africa. We are, our lineage, if you like, um, the hominids, which became, eventually became humans. The oldest fossils are found in Africa. Now, for many, many years, science believed that, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we humans, once the idea of evolution was considered by some members of society to be a fact of life. Those scientists who bought into that, of course, religion didn't like the idea at all, but those scientists who bought into that said, uh, you know, our ancestors probably come from China or from Asia, from somewhere like that. And that's where they grew up because there was a fossil found many, many years ago called Peking Man in China. And they thought, oh, that's our ancestor from way, way back. Mm -hmm. Until they started finding in Africa fossils that predated that fossil by millions of years. Back in uh, 1969 or 70, I did a documentary of a man called Raymond Dart. Now, if anybody wants a good read, go and read Raymond Dart, Mm D-A-R-T, and the discovery of the first human fossil. It's not a human fossil. It's a hominid fossil that eventually becomes the human line. It's called Adventures with the Missing Link. It's a great read. And so in 1924, Raymond Dart discovered the first Australopithecus Africanus fossil in Africa. Australopithecus means southern man and Africanus of Africa, the southern man of Africa. And you can trace by looking at the fossils that Australopithecus Africanus eventually evolved into other bipedal beings, two-legged beings who walked upright, 
and started making bone stools and uh, bone tools and stone tools and weapons or whatever else. Um, you know, we are all originally from Africa. There's this great story of Lucy, this skeleton that was found in Ethiopia. Yeah. Uh, Lucy was was one of our ancestors. You know, she's our ancestral mother, if you like. And uh, not that she's the person one responsible, but that type. We are all originally from Africa. So do we carry this wisdom with us from society to society? I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case at all. And that that wisdom has spread and then been developed by other societies and other tribal groups around the world. Maybe so. I think uh, it's a possibility. But anybody who goes to Africa, particularly to the wild parts of Africa, get out of the cities, get away from the freeways, get away from all of that stuff, get away from the luxury hotels, get away from the safaris with with, with the ice coolers and all that. Go and sit in the bush. Everybody develops an affinity with the African wilderness. I think, why? Because we have a connection with that continent. That's our home. That's our birthplace. That's very interesting. Do you ever considered owning property in Africa? No, well, I I did because before we came to the States, of course, but no longer. I mean, I would love to have a place there. No, I have a little, a little, a little area in the Mojave Desert, which I, and it's just a plot of land. There's nothing there. It's not even a house there. But mm-hmm. I go there regularly, and I go there to meditate, and I just go there to connect with nature. It's mm-hmm. very important. I love wild places, and mm-hmm. I think that we. Folks who live in cities and urban areas, you know, we, we have lost our contact with nature. We have lost our connection with the natural world. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very, very, very important for folks to redevelop mm-hmm. that connection with nature, particularly mm-hmm. young people. Everybody's, what do, what do the young kids do today? They're, they're doing this, you yeah. know. <laughs> we have lost our connection with the natural world. Yeah. And they don't know anything about what goes on out there. I mean, get out there, leave the iPhones and leave all the electronic stuff and the and the digital games at home. Unplug everything, get rid of the batteries, go out there with a tent and sit there for three days and find yourself. And you will find yourself out there. You will find that there's another dimension to us when we reconnect with nature. Mm-hmm. Besides nature, what inspires you most about being in Africa? I think it's antiquity and it's variety. Mm-hmm. By the way, you were talking earlier about, uh, uh, you know, you you had an Indian connection. or you. Uh, one of my favorite places is, is unquestionably India mm-hmm. and um, South India particularly, which is mainly Hindu mm-hmm. as opposed to there's, uh, you know, a lot of Islam and so on in the northern parts of, mm-hmm. of India. But I find Hinduism and and Jainism, which is a, an, a very extreme version of Hinduism, mm-hmm. are absolutely fascinating. Those folks don't, when they go out, they wear masks. And this is before the COVID virus. Mm-hmm. Why? So that they don't breathe in any bugs. Not because they don't want to swallow the bug, but God forbid they should take another life. Yeah. Don't injure any other life form. Yeah. And I think that that is a wonderful way of looking at the world. We don't have enough respect for our fellow beings, be it a bug or be it a bear or whatever, you know, and those people do. Mm-hmm. And I love that, which is an inherent part of Hinduism. And it comes out of this belief in karma and in reincarnation because it's all about balance. 
And you don't want to take on this debt. You don't want to be responsible for taking other lives. But it's not only about that. It's about just having basic respect for your fellow beings, not just your fellow humans, but Mm -hmm. all beings. I love that about India. And it's a wonderful experience to go there Mm -hmm. and feel that. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because I've pondered that sometimes before about if you try to, you know, not ever injure anything, not even a bug, you would almost be impossible because you couldn't walk down the street without yeah. stepping on a bug. <laughs> right? could, that's right. <laughs> it would almost See, drive there's you. A price to pay. <laughs> there's a price to pay for being in the physical world. The minute you come into the physical world, there's a price to pay. Yeah. Uh, you immediately start accumulating debt mm-hmm. and you immediately start becoming destructive, even yeah. if you do it consciously or not. It's 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 the process of being in the physical realm mm-hmm. that makes that happen. So the choice is, well, how less of an impact can I bring about as I go about my business? Yeah. And that's what we're because we have we have choice. We can choose to do that. Mm-hmm. Do, do I want to eat other animals or can I be fine and get my protein and whatever else by not killing other animals? And if you can do that, so much the better better for your health mm-hmm. and don't injure other life forms you know have the 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 least impact on your environment mm-hmm. and on your fellow beings your fellow creatures they're right. all here for a purpose you know yeah I'm, it almost makes me think like you don't have to worry about injuring other life forms because they do it to each other anyways one they do hunting but, another. but you see they don't have choice we do yeah most, most, most creatures, creatures in nature, you know, are, are driven by instinct, right? Mm-hmm. And they program that way and it's, it's embedded. But we actually are blessed with the ability to choose. Mm-hmm. And that gives you the responsibility to make an important decision. Do I do this or do I do that? Especially if you know that you can make the choice, mm-hmm. make the right one. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm curious of what your opinion's going to be if you don't you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Do you think that we actually evolved or do you think something extraterrestrial changed hominids to what we are today? I have no doubt whatsoever that we have been bioengineered by extraterrestrials. They have played an influence in our lives. Mm-hmm. There was this creature called Australopithecus africanus but mm-hmm. Our lineage has been tweaked so many times. Mm-hmm. I am firmly a believer of this. By who and what, uh, I have no idea. But I think that we, there's been a lot of bioengineering by extraterrestrials. I, I, I don't doubt that for a moment. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they found any evolutionary link that jumps us no. from one to what we are today. No. One of the things Raymond Dart, the guy I was telling you earlier, mm-hmm. told me when, when I did this biography of him and he mm-hmm. discovered this first fossil, he says, you know what, Lionel, I'll tell you this. We now find a very primitive form of human being, but we are never going to find all the missing links in the chain. We'll never find it. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I didn't know what he meant by at that time. This is way back. And I, and I think he's absolutely right because – there were other influences. There were other elements playing into the story. Mm. And I think they're extraterrestrial. You know, mm. what do they say? About, uh, um, a lot of our DNA, you know, is not, is not, is not human. It's from somewhere else. Mm. 
They used to call it junk DNA. I don't believe it's junk DNA at all. I think it's extraterrestrial DNA. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as I know, even Darwin himself said everything started with a basic life form, but he never accounted for even where that basic life form came from. Right. And remember, his knowledge was limited, and he lived in a time where everything was so closeted and so warped in and, you know, by the church and by religion and by society concepts of those days that, you know, to be able to expand that idea since Darwin was running around the Galapagos, I mean, there's been so many new discoveries since then that, you know, if only Darwin could come back now, he'd probably be amazed and, you know, would rethink things. Um, you know, you read uh, you read someone like Graham, Graham Hancock, who I've interviewed for a number of shows, you know, and we talk about some of these ancient structures that exist on the earth. A lot of them are probably done with extraterrestrial help. I mean, and, you know, I have gone into the Great Pyramid at, in, 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 in Saqqara. Hmm. And I was given the opportunity of actually being in the king's chamber with that sarcophagus on my own. Hmm. And I was even given the opportunity, and I know it wasn't allowed. It was not allowed. But the guy said to me, get in, this Egyptian guy. He said, you get in there. And I did. And he left me alone. And I did my mantra. I did my own. And I went to another dimension. There was no question. I went to another realm. And I know that that building is probably not entirely man-made. And I th- it certainly ain't a grave. And it's not the grave of a pharaoh. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. I think it has a lot to do with sound. What's that word, the, the phrase in the Bible you know, by, 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 by St. John? In the beginning was the word, mm-hmm. and the word was God, and the word was with God. I think this, this, this essence of audio, of, mm-hmm. of, of sound, is, is fundamental to a creative process, that, mm-hmm. which is why we relate to music the way we do. Did you feel like when it's you It's a in, complex story. When you were in the sarcophagus, did you have an out-of-body experience? I, I just went into another realm. It was like mm-hmm. almost um, what happens to you when you start going under the anesthetic before surgery. You, 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 you drift away. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard my mantra because I, I was awake and I was saying my mantra. And it was coming back to me in, in three different forms. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why or what mm-hmm. uh, that was all about. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was... That 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 room and that that building. I think the Great Pyramid is one of the one of the, the great calling cards mm-hmm. of our extraterrestrial visitors. When we figure out what that's all about, you know. Yeah. In your biography, you've directed for the History Channel. What do you yeah. think about that show, Ancient Aliens? Well, Ancient Aliens. I don't watch it, and I know it's hugely popular. Yeah. And I think it's great because it makes people think it opens up your mind. I think the most important thing is to be curious. Mm -hmm. And as long as it keeps sparking curiosity, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Open up your mind. Go outside the box. Be open to anything. Don't buy into Buy everything you hear. Don't be gullible and don't be impressionable. But be open to the possibility of anything and everything. Mm -hmm. And then consider it yourself and make up your own mind. I think that's what the role of Ancient Aliens is. And by the way, one of the early shows I did uh, in Ancient Mysteries when it was still being presented by Leonard Nimoy was, um, uh, what did we call it? I think we called it Ancient um, ancient Aliens, uh, or no, Ancient 
uh, visitors or something like that. We, we went back in time and we looked at the at the at the records in in Egypt and elsewhere in the world. And that's where I first came across Graham Hancock and interviewed him. Was to look at well, at at what point did extraterrestrial contact maybe begin to happen here on the Earth? And it goes back thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we're not alone. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes I think that you know people are saying, "Where's the proof? Where's the proof?" But if you want to have something that lasts millions of years, then you build it out of rock, mm. like some of these yeah. structures. Yeah, I mean, Gobekli Peki in Turkey is another strange site. It's very, very complex. It's mm-hmm. extremely advanced in many ways, and it's ancient. You know, do we really know what Stonehenge was all about? No, we do not. Mm-hmm. It's not an observatory. And, you know, uh, do we understand all of these things? We don't. Oh, yeah. So Our- all of this is to be considered and, and examined. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, everybody can make up their own mind about it, but be open-minded. That's the most important thing is to maintain an open mind about stuff. Yes, I agree. All right. So you have this book out. Do you have any other projects that you're working on that you'd like us to know about? I have a, I have a book on the history of aviation in Africa, which comes out in July next year. Hmm. Uh, that's called the flying Springbok. Uh, Forever in my veins will be available. Uh, you can, p- folks can buy that now. They can order it right now from Barnes and Noble or Amazon.com. But mm-hmm. uh, around about April, May next year, my next book is called The Flying Springbok, which was the logo of mm-hmm. the airline in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be available in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and I'm really proud of that because I love aviation. I love technology, and I love fine machines you know things that work well uh and so and the whole romance and uh, of that of 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 aviation fascinates me and particularly in africa where it all had to be developed when there was nothing Mm -hmm. uh so that's next but uh what i'm doing at the moment is i'm starting a novel which i hope will eventually end up as a sci-fi movie oh wow yeah, so that, I don't want to talk too much about that because it's still early stage, and you know you don't, you don't want to jinx things. But that's right. that's that's next. Well, I think that even this book here could be an interesting movie. Have you considered that? I have, and I'll probably use elements of it in my uh, in my in my next project. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is another book that is also if if folks want to look at my website, there's another book that I wrote. It's it's on the history of Hollywood um, mm-hmm. called Full Service about a bartender um, who knew all the stars in Hollywood. Because so, I, I also love Hollywood history, but this is, this is pretty risque stuff mm-hmm. uh, because he knew what went on behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And Scotty just gave, told, told me all about his life. And I said, Scotty, we got to tell the story. So we did. <laughs> and that became a New York Times bestseller. But forever in my veins for me, you know, is, is really my story. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I wanted to share this world with folks. That, 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 that we live on an amazing planet and, and all we need to do is to be respectful of one another and just keep our minds open and just keep, I, it's like, I, I keep thinking about this huge field of grass and you want to get from one side to the other. So you've got to chop away, you know, hack away at the grass. But the more you cut, the deeper you go, the more you realize what still exists. We'll never get to the end. And that is so exciting because there is still so much more to discover, so much more to explore, 
so much more to discover about ourselves and our universe. I mean, just we just keep on hacking away. It's all so wonderfully amazing. Mm-hmm. We'll never get to the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, That's what's so exciting. Yes. All right, Mr. Friedberg, this was an amazing podcast. I really appreciate you giving me your time today. I know you're a busy man, and I wish you massive success with your book and with all your other projects that you're involved with. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure being with you tonight. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for having me on. All right. Have a great evening. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.